You're listening to X-Ray FM on KXRY, Portland at 91.1 and 107.1, streaming online everywhere at xray.fm. This is Amplify Women on X-Ray FM. I'm your host, Emmy Ritter, Executive Director of Raphael House of Portland. And in celebration of International Women's Day, we're hosting 12 hours of women-focused programming. I am honored to join them in amplifying women's voices and providing intersectional education on diverse ranges of issues impacting women in Portland and beyond. Between now and 7 p.m., you will be hearing some of Portland's most impactful community leaders, educators, activists, artists, and professionals as they tell their stories to educate, empower, and inspire change. As part of today's programming, in honor of International Women's Day, I am grateful to talk to my colleagues and some of the experts from Multnomah County to discuss how this pandemic has impacted the survivors with whom we work, their lives, and the local services. This conversation may have content that is unsettling for some audiences. We'll be discussing domestic and sexual violence. If you or someone you know needs support with this issue, reach out to Call to Safety's confidential 24-7 crisis line at 1-888-235-5333. Again, that's 1-888-235-5333. We at Raphael House of Portland have supported survivors of domestic violence across the community for almost 40 years, for over 40 years actually. And I'm excited to discuss these issues today with um, these great advocates that I've worked collaboratively with for years and years. Um, Our agency works very closely with, and we all have been working together to ensure that all of our services are the most accessible, safe and responsive system of care for survivors of abuse and sexual violence. The experts joining me today, very excited, um, and I get to discuss these fabulous issues with, um, are Jenny Woodson, who is the Program Director of Volunteers of America, Oregon's Domestic Violence Program, Home Free, Alicia Ponce, who is the Director of Services at Call to Safety, and Allison Wilson, who is the Program Supervisor of the Domestic Violence Crisis Response Unit of the Multnomah County Domestic and Sexual Violence Coordination Office. So shall we get going? I'm about to, um, I'm gonna ask everybody to introduce yourselves um, and your programs and how we fit together in this local system of care for survivors before we get on the topics of today. Um, So Jenny, can you go ahead and introduce yourself, please? Sure, this is Jenny Woodson. As Emmy said, I'm from Volunteers of America, Oregon, Home Free. I use she, her pronouns. Volunteers of America is a multi-service organization and Home Free is the Domestic Violence Services Program. We provide mobile advocacy, transitional scattered site housing, legal advocacy, prevention education, and a hotline since 2003 in Multnomah County. Thanks, Jenny. Alicia, can you talk about call to safety in yourself? Yeah, good morning, everyone. My name is Alicia Ponce. I am the Director of Services at Call to Safety. I use she and her pronouns. Um, Call to Safety is also a multi-service agency, and we are the 24-7 confidential crisis line here in Multnomah County. We also have mobile advocacy. We support survivors of domestic, sexual violence, sex-trafficked youth, and also folks in the sex industry. Thanks, Alicia. Allison, thanks for joining. 
Hi, so happy to be here with you guys. My name is Allison Wilson. Uh, I use she, her pronouns, and I am the program supervisor for our Domestic Violence Crisis Response Unit, which is a part of the Domestic and Sexual Violence Coordination Office of Multnomah County. We partner largely with law enforcement and have advocates who are on site to go out with officers and work with survivors on scene when there have been incidents of domestic violence in Multnomah County. We also focus specifically on high risk domestic violence and high lethality cases in our county and work additionally with elder and vulnerable adults who are experiencing violence in their home. Thanks, Allison. And Raphael House of Portland works really closely with all of these programs as one of um, three shelters um, in Multnomah County. So through a survivor safety focused coordinated system with all of the local programs, those on our call today, and including other programs, including the culturally specific agencies, we um, at Raphael House can provide safe, confidential shelter to survivors. Besides shelter, we are able to provide long-term support, housing and case management with families through the communities and can assist survivors struggling with a recovery and addiction with our, our recovery mentor program. I work really closely with Jenny and her team at Home Free with two other innovative programs. So we house um, domestic violence advocates in the local family health clinic and have been able to expand our prevention education program throughout many of the Portland public schools to help teach um, safe and equitable relationships to um, students through that system. And though we are celebrating International Women's Day, each of our agencies support and work with survivors of all gender identities and expressions. And that's really important to take note here. So um, let's get into these questions that have um, been really important to all of us um, as agencies, as the advocates on the ground doing the work. And we really wanna focus on how advocates have been um, experiencing this pandemic and how they have been working closely with the survivors who are, have been um, incredibly impacted this past year. So um, I'm gonna uh, start with the first question, which is um, what significant changes or impacts have advocates who are working day-to-day -day with survivors have noticed or what have they heard from survivors this past year? And um, go ahead, you could unmute yourself when you're ready to answer that, um, or I will just call out a name because I know you're all ready to jump in. Allison, why don't you go ahead? Okay, thanks, Emmy. Um, you know, the pandemic has brought a lot of changes for survivors and for advocates and how, how people are accessing services, uh, where places are were previously open that are now maybe closed for in-person services. And folks are really having to do a lot of navigating of systems over the phone, over the internet, um, accessing tools in ways that maybe they previously did not have to do and having to figure out new ways to set up those programs and those services so that they are really accessible in a multitude of ways for folks who are experiencing violence in their homes. Right, uh, Jenny, do you have anything to add to that? I think everything that Allison said and that one of the things that folks have probably heard in the media more um, about the pandemic and impact on domestic violence survivors in particular is this isolation and also frequent isolation with abusive partners. And those are the types of things we've heard from survivors and some of the needs that they've had have been related to not 
being able to access normal um, avenues for help. They're not seeing their children's teachers at school. They might not be seeing their coworkers um, in the same way. They're doing their doctor's appointments virtually. So partners might be sitting on the other side of the uh, screen and things like that. So we've definitely noticed that isolation piece for survivors and figuring out how to adapt our services to be able to reach them the best way possible. Which is a real safety issue. And we know as advocates in this field that isolation is one of the most explicit tools that abusers use to make sure that they have power control over survivors. Alicia, do you have um, other pieces to add in terms of crisis line experience that advocates are hearing from survivors? Yeah, thank you. And I, I, I agree with Jenny and Allison, and I think that isolation is definitely um, something that, you know, a lot of even everyone in the world right now is kind of experiencing. So I think about like the impacts of COVID um, and how it's impacted just everyone. And then I think about how it's just multiplied, you know, times 100 for survivors in the community. And it's hard to reach out when every, when the city itself is shut down and the resources have all changed. And it can even be difficult just to make a simple phone call where maybe once before you could go to your workplace or, you know, get out and about and and make those calls and check in on those resources where now even just reaching out can be challenging. You know, for the crisis line itself, we saw a huge increase in calls um, when, you know, the pandemic started and um, it's been pretty steady since. Um, So, yeah, I think about just how it's impacted everyone's lives and then just how much more challenging it can be for survivors. And very much exacerbated. I know over the past year, we've all been talking to each other about the increase in lethality. um, or dangers that we've been hearing from survivors. Do any of you want to comment? This is Allison. I can share on our on our high risk domestic violence enhanced response team. <clears throat> we have definitely seen an increase in the severity of abuse that is occurring in homes. Uh, we have had an influx of cases where we are really having to be creative in thinking <clears throat> about how we can talk about safety for folks who are having to plan to leave while they're still living with their abuser. But thinking about how much how much more control and how much more power uh, perpetrators have in this moment over survivors that we're working with and the stress and the exacerbating factors of life right now for everybody, Alicia, like you mentioned, stresses around job, jobs, housing, children are at home doing schooling, uh, people are worried about food security, all of those different factors definitely come into play when we're also talking about violence in our home and the increase in what we're seeing as we're working with with survivors right now. Thanks, Allison. You're really um, connecting to this next question or really a question after the next question that relates to the fact that this work is already so hard and the advocates work so in intentionally to um, create safety planning and support survivors. And yet the situation that um, survivors are in and and quite honestly, advocates are in is very, very different than what it was um, pre-pandemic. And we, uh, we, in discussing this conversation yesterday, really realized that our work is trauma steeped. 
and advocates um, have skill set around that and um, deep intention around protecting themselves from secondary trauma. And we as agency leaders really do as well. And yet this has really been an a increased challenge for all of us. So um, without re-traumatizing our listeners or uh, survivors who are listening, um, I want to cannot connect the two next questions together. Um, and, uh, you know, I know that we're going to be really thoughtful around how that, uh, that affects our listeners and also um, yeah, give the message that this is hard work and, and people have been incredibly creative and thoughtful in how they've been um, implementing the day-to-day uh, advocacy. So how has safety planning with survivors changed over this past year? And the real connection to that is how are your teams doing in, in adjusting to this? This is Jenny. And I would say one thing that to note about advocates and just doing advocacy as a profession is that we're constantly meeting folks where they're at, that we're always trying to think of the most creative ways the best suggestions when we're talking about safety and thinking about future issues with survivors. And the one thing that you'll hear us say often is that they're the expert in their own experience. And so taking that and moving it into this pandemic safety planning in some ways has been relatively easy in that it's what we do. It's always what advocates have done. I always say doing this work for nearly 20 years, I can still hear something that's I've never heard before, right? So I do think um, in some ways advocates are sort of made for trying to figure out and be creative and you know think of new ideas to help survivors. All that to say it's been hard because I think as Allison mentioned earlier, we have a lot of services and in-person options that just aren't available anymore that we may have talked about or may have been part of someone's plan, whether it's even they can always fly to their mom's house in Minnesota or something like that. And they might not want to do that because of um, the pandemic and safety and traveling and those types of things. So I do think that it's sort of our job and what we've always done, but then there's also this part that because of those fewer options, it's been challenging. It's been challenging for staff. Thanks, Jenny. And I just want to say again, this is Emmy Ritter from Raphael House of Portland on Amplify Women X-Ray FM. Alicia, do you have anything to add to that from the crisis line? I can't even imagine what some of those phone calls sound like. Yeah, absolutely. And I agree with Jenny. I think that our advocates are amazing and creative and that's part of that safety planning. And I just want to also share that survivors are creative and oftentimes, you know, we are learning from survivors who are sharing on the crisis line how they've had to switch their safety planning around which is truly, you know, impressive. You know, when we think about safety planning, there's many different ways to safety plan. There's the physical safety planning, of course, and then there's also the emotional safety planning. And I think that, you know, it's always been kind of a creative skill that our advocates are amazing at. And I think that we've just become more creative in doing that work. Um, So yeah, I mean, it's definitely, you know, has shifted. But I agree with Jenny that, you know, our advocates have been doing this. This is the work that we do. Yes, thank you. Um, I, I'm picturing advocates sitting at home and answering crisis line calls um, or calls from 
people they've been working with long term, and and uh, because there's this parallel process happening. We have survivors at home trapped with abusers, and we have and their children and limited um, resources, and then they're connecting with the uh, advocates on the phone who are sitting in a room with their children possibly doing schoolwork in the other room and their their partners in the room and their or extended family because they've had to consolidate um, their lives as well. Um, Allison, do, is that the experience of some of the advocates that you're um, supervising? Thank you for that question, Emmy. I think definitely it is. Um, advocates on, on my team are answering, very similar to Alicia and Jenny, um, answering calls and pages for assistance and support at all hours of the day and evening. And, you know, they're now living with that also in their home, which previously, like you were talking about, you know, advocates are very skilled at um, working towards lessening or lowering our secondary trauma. And previously having a space, a workspace, an office that you would go to, um, to do that work, also helped create those boundaries and draw those lines so that when you came home, you were really able to be present with, with your partner and your family, um, your roommates, whoever, whoever it is that you're spending time with. And, and those boundaries have gotten incredibly blurred during this pandemic for advocates and for survivors alike. Um, and I think one of the things that I do very much hear from my advocates and from my team is they worry also about the impact on their family of having having the work coming into the home and worried that somebody may be hearing a conversation that would be difficult. They worry about confidentiality for survivors and really getting creative again in their homes about where they're even taking these calls. If they're you know, kind of squirreling themselves away in the basement or going out for a walk while they're taking a call to talk with a survivor so that they can have some space and privacy to do that. And for any, many of our staff, Allison, and I'm sure for yours too, that are in either multi-generational households or have large families are taking calls in their bedroom and spending the day in front of a screen and on the phone in their bedroom that they're then supposed to be able to rest and recharge that night. So I think that those distinctions of what is home and work have been a struggle for everyone. I think working from home during the pandemic, but particularly thinking about vicarious trauma and secondary trauma, it, it is definitely very challenging for staff. Thanks y'all. We had such a robust conversation about this. I think this is the concern for um, all of our agencies in the domestic violence continuum of care of, to make sure that our staff can sustain this hard work um, and really continue to be the resilient, amazing advocates that they are. It's, it's really on um, our shoulders to make sure that we create an environment that is um, that can uh, hold that, which is more challenging because we have, our advocates are scattered throughout the community. They're not coming in and getting to have a pizza party or chocolate or getting to debrief with each other like they usually are used to. And that debriefing can be very, very helpful. I, uh, I'm going to scoot back to one of the other questions that I had that was, um, what are some of the specific ways that we've all pivoted? And I know at Raphael House, um, because of the pandemic, right away, like basically a year ago next week, 
we closed down our on-site services and we started changing how we support survivors from um, to incorporate more support around basic needs and keeping people stably housed. So we were giving out food boxes and hygiene supplies. Um, we've got all our support groups online and virtual and helped families learn how to, um, to use Zoom and other platforms to be able to be in support groups and also make sure that their kids were um, getting to figure out those pieces. We were able to provide uh, Chromebooks for families so those kiddos can um, go to school both in shelter as well as um, in the community. Shelter, um, may, we had to make some, some significant changes because of the uh, congregate nature of shelter and asking families to really um, self-isolate in their in their rooms. Um, we were able to provide mini fridges, those Chromebooks, and uh, did all our advocacy over the phone or via text initially. Um, it's been really hard for our youth team because they want to play with the kids and help kids grow and learn and uh, and work beyond that trauma that they've experienced that brought them into shelter. And um, we are looking forward to being able to work more closely with survivors in shelter. How have some of your agencies been able to pivot in that way? This is Jenny again. And I think at Home Free, one of the things that we were able to do as we were working from home, um, as Emmy said, trying to think about these basic needs, moving things to text, video, email. And one of the things we prioritized at the very beginning was making sure survivors had phones, smartphones and data plans. Um, that really was important to stay connected and for all the other reasons that survivors needed those connections that weren't related to accessing services. And we spend a lot of our time at home free co-located in other systems. So we're with police, we're with DHS, we're with the health clinic, we're in the schools and not being able to have that access and those referrals from our partners, sort of warm handoffs on site really challenged how we were going to connect with survivors in, um, in those situations. And another service that Home Free has always provided, um, we've called the restraining order room, but basically we had advocates that were in the courthouse that would help survivors fill out petitions for restraining orders, stalking orders, sexual abuse protective orders, elder abuse and persons with disabilities protective orders that we were now unable to do. We weren't able to go there in person. So we actually created a whole new hotline that we never had before. We discussed with the court ways that we could submit papers um, and petitions electronically. And then the court called the petitioner at a safe phone number in the afternoon. And we've been very fortunate with Gateway and ourselves to be able to, the Gateway Center for Domestic Violence Services, to be able to provide this remote restraining order um, advocacy and that folks could still file for um, those orders, even if they couldn't go in person to the courthouse. Um, and I will just add, Jenny, really quickly on top of that, just to really give some kudos to your team and, and to VOA for doing that work. Our 
my advocates that I work with on my team have said over and over um, just how exceptional it has really been for them to be able to do protective orders for domestic violence survivors and sexual violence survivors electronically and for folks to be able to be in a safe place in their home or with a support person while they're talking with the judge about the order as it's being issued. Um, for the advocates being able to really still have access to that has been life-saving for so many of the folks that we work with who otherwise would have found themselves unable to apply for those protective orders and have those in place. Um, so a big thank you to you and your staff for that work. Allison, what are some of the other things that um, you've had to do? Because your advocates are out and about at all hours of the day and night. How have you how have they been able to adjust or how has the system been able to adjust to support survivors? Sure. Uh, it, ha it has been challenging and um, it has been a also a good, again, kind of creative practice for us to stretch our, stretch our minds and think about how we could do things differently. You know, initially all of the advocates, we very much had to do a lot of shifting around, um, you know, health guidelines and restrictions that were put in place uh, as we're still trying to be able to go out and meet with folks where they're at, uh, folks on our team are still getting called to the hospital or to meet with people out in community and hopefully get them to safe housing or be able to get services out to them, whether it was food or hygiene items, diapers, clothing, any of those things. Um, so we, we spent a lot of time really kind of thinking through how can we do this safely? How can we also provide this to folks in a way that feels safe and comfortable for them. If they do have immunocompromising concerns that they were worried about, uh, one of our team members works specifically with elder and vulnerable adults. Um, so she had to do a lot of very quick thinking around how to be able to still meet needs for folks that provided for safety around the pandemic, as well as safety around the violence that they were experiencing in their home. Um, and, you know, just, just like everybody on, on all of your teams, we just kept doing it. And we talked and we had lots of phone calls at 11 o'clock at night about here's the situation that came up. What do you think the best option is for how we can manage? We would call on, on you guys and your teams and, and say, hey, I think Raphael House might have access to this program that we could use to help this person. Or gosh, let's connect with an advocate at Call to Safety for support after hours. And you know, how do we talk to the restraining order hotline to make sure that tomorrow morning this person knows where to call, the survivor has access to somebody for that. Um, you know, so I will say, I think really it has been, like you've mentioned, a very much a effort across our entire continuum from all of our programs and all of our services and every advocate coming together to really support each other in order to make sure that we can support survivors. Thanks, Allison. Alicia, real... Um... Uh, before we take a break, I want to um, call out the fact that we're doing safety planning around the violence, but also around the pandemic. And I imagine that that has been a real pivot for your team. And I just want to make sure that um, we get to hear what's going on at Call to Safety. 
Yeah, thank you. And, you know, I, I absolutely agree with a lot of what Jenny and Allison have shared already around the changes and the challenges. I know that when the crisis line went remote, there was a lot of different, you know, pieces to that, um, making sure that we could still do those warm handoffs and those transferred calls, and then just keeping up with all of the community changes, um, you know, really trying to share accurate information um, you know, it, it it took a lot of calls and texts and communication and conversations. Um, and it's also been really amazing, too, to see some of the newer resources and options um, that we weren't once using. Um, for example, like you were mentioning, Jenny, the restraining order hotline has been just an amazing addition um, for folks trying to seek that um, during the pandemic. Um, you know, I, I would say that one of the things we recognized right away was folks having, you know, challenges around just reaching out and making that phone call. So we recognize that need right away. We were able to increase our text and chat hours. Um, and to be honest, only three additional a week or a day doubled the amount of text and chat we were receiving. So the need was definitely um, there. Um, so yeah, just a lot of navigating and, and keeping up with the changes that were just, you know, so incredibly um, fast, you know, in our community um, so that we can be as accurate when we share resources. And we sometimes we just have to be honest that we don't know and let's try to figure it out together and make those calls. I think and it's I really think proved how nimble they can be. Go ahead, Jenny. And we had time at the very beginning of the pandemic where we were meeting weekly, if not more frequently as a continuum, it really was a group um, multi-agency effort and really appreciative of call to safety as the hub of a lot of this information and being able to um, hear from them. They were asking us about services and then just able to tell us about what services were also available in the community and how things had changed. So I thought that was also very helpful at the beginning of all this was just keeping up on that communication with each other, as Alicia was saying. Exactly. Thanks, Jenny. This is Amplify Women on X-Ray FM. I'm your host, Emmy Ritter, Executive Director of Raphael House of Portland. And this is X-Ray FM, and we will be right back. This conversation may have content that is unsettling for some audiences. We'll be discussing domestic and sexual violence. If you or someone you know needs support with this issue, reach out to Call to Safety's confidential 24-7 crisis line at 1-888-235-5333. Again, that's 1-888-235-5333. Hi, again, this is Emmy Ritter, Executive Director of Raphael House of Portland, getting to discuss um, some issues around how we have responded to the pandemic and how the pandemic has impacted survivors and advocates and all of our agencies. I'm getting to talk to Jenny Woodson, Program Director at Volunteers of America Oregon's Domestic Violence Program Home Free, Alicia Ponce, who is the Director of Services at Call to Safety, and Allison Wilson, who is the Program Supervisor of the Domestic Violence Crisis Response Unit of the Multnomah County Domestic and Sexual Violence Coordination Office. We're going to jump back into our questions. I do want to take note that Alicia had to jump off um, earlier because she was had to take a crisis line call. So just to really highlight the fact that we're all 
moving around and being very nimble with the jobs that we have with our um, and working as a team constantly and that we're in real time. Um, we were talking about how we have pivoted and how advocates have pivoted and how survivors have really been incredibly creative and um, in building out their safety and um, how advocates have responded to that and been um, as accessible as possible, as our agencies have been accessible as possible. And that's been what the last year has been like, constantly moving and wondering where the services are going to be um, and making adjustments on the fly. But as we, um, as we really look towards the next year, this crisis is long from over especially for survivors. What big challenges um, are you facing right now um, that you believe are gonna get more exacerbated as we move forward? What are you anticipating and planning for? Uh, this is Allison with the Domestic Violence Crisis Response Unit. I can jump in a little bit here with one of the concerns. Our team works pretty closely with the criminal justice system. Uh, and we have seen a lot of delays and changes in how court processes are working, when hearings are happening, um, trials and different things like that, that our survivors are participating in, are depending on for safety to know what's happening uh, with the perpetrator who has harmed them. And um, I definitely talk on a regular basis with my staff about how that's going to continue to look over the next year as we know that there are um, from restraining order violations to felony criminal trials that have been delayed in happening that potentially will continue to be delayed and that that resolution uh, becomes further and further away for folks who are working on moving towards safety and starting their lives in a very different way and a very different direction and having those, those some of those pieces continuing to hang on um, is difficult. And I think that um, we will have a lot of that continuing to happen throughout the year. Thanks, Allison. Jenny, what's going on at, um, what are you thinking about at Home Free? Uh, lots of things. <laughs> I think one of the things that I thought of as Allison was speaking, the other thing that's been happening during this pandemic is this sort of, you know, equity racial reckoning that our society is going through right now. And as advocates that are often working with folks and really connected to law enforcement in some way, it has posed some interesting questions and has provided these great dialogues that we're having at our multidisciplinary tables to talk about what does community policing look like for domestic violence survivors and what is going to happen when these cases, um, as Allison was saying, are delayed. Um, there's just a lot of unknowns. And I think that that is probably one of the bigger things that we've been thinking about. And as we've learned from past crises in our society, right, that the folks that are most impacted are people of color, immigrants, um, et cetera, in our community, right? So as we are looking to the future, everything that has been going on is all these impacts are going to just snowball. You know, right? We're facing 
um, folks that are going to have to pay a year's worth of rent in six months, for example, once the moratoriums lift. We're trying to find resources and we've been able to provide some resources for survivors that are unable to pay rent. But for folks that maybe have lost employment and haven't paid rent, fortunately they haven't been evicted, but you know, six months to pay six months plus a year of rent, for example, is just too much. And we know that survivors are going to feel just as stuck and just as isolated and not have those resources available. You know, I think it's easy for us to look ahead at life returning to normal and sort of some of the fun things that that means for us. But as we know, with these crises, that the impact is long for folks that are disenfranchised in our community already. Thanks, Jenny. Alicia, do you have um, anything to add to this uh, before you jump on a half, uh, jump on a crisis call again? Yeah, thank you for that. And <clears throat> it's part of this job is having to step aside um, sometimes. Um, I think one of the concerns that we are hearing on the line, you know, directly from survivors of domestic and sexual violence is the unknown um, about resources. And yes, there's resources right now, and maybe there are resources to help with, you know, rears rent. Um, but at some point, there's a, a realization that, that those there's concerns that that the pandemic at some point, um, they will have to face those past months that they haven't been able to pay or finding jobs and employment. I think that is one of the biggest things that we hear, um, especially for folks who maybe who just started their jobs and they were so excited and um, now all of a sudden they have lost their jobs or have gone down in hours or no longer have childcare. So I think it's just kind of, you know, in everyone's mind um, as we move forward, um, just kind of how those, how the community um, is going to slowly reopen and match the needs that we are facing day to day. Yeah, really pointing out that we've all been here this entire time and have made really large changes as um, the domestic violence survivors with whom we're working have made large changes in their lives and also have had a stop making those large changes. Many of them were working towards real um, significant goals of self-sufficiency and, and home ownership and you know, career path changes. And suddenly now we're back in crisis mode, all of us this past year. And um, how you know, we were, were bringing food boxes to families that we were helping um, get into school before, and that has all shifted. How do we then pivot back to that place of thinking about these large hopeful goals um, when all of us as a society have been struggling with what the next steps are, what is the unknown, um, and uh, holding on to those, those rays of hope that we have, which quite honestly, I believe that um, our system, our advocates that work in the system do beautifully every single day. And it really is part of the deep resiliency that we have um, in this field, which is why many of us have been in here for 20, almost 30 years. So, um, I mean, can I just add really quick, just yeah. on what you, what you just said really kind of brought up for me thinking of the, the rays of hope, I think is, is what you said. And um, just how resilient our system has been able to be and the advocates who work in it and the survivors who are accessing it. 
Um, you know, one of the things that a lot of the advocates have mentioned and that I've heard across tables from folks during the pandemic has been the amount of um, emotional connection and uplift that they are doing right now with each other and with survivors, the, the hours that they are spending on the phone where previously they would have been in person with somebody sitting side by side. Um, and again, just really kind of shouting out to the advocates that they really have been uh, that ray of hope for so many folks answering their phones at all times of day. I think um, a lot of our a lot of our staff members um, have had some of those blurry boundary lines on a Saturday when a survivor they're working with calls, they're still answering their phone and spending an hour talking with them and, and being there to really support and uplift and, and encourage folks to keep going during this time. And I think that has, or the way our system manages that has really made so much of a difference in how people are doing. Exactly. Um, I'm going to uh, reflect on um, uh, our housing advocate, Alicia, um, runs our Latinx support group. And she's been doing so for I don't know how many decades, many years. And it's an incredibly strong community of, um, of families who rely on each other for community and have built that community here in our advocacy center. Um, it's been a real... Uh, it's been a real challenge for her and for the community to not have that support group as their center hub. And she, when she started the virtual support group, she had just a, you know, two people and she came running into my office and she's like, Oh my God, they're so excited to be here. And they're going to go tell everybody else to show up. I can't even imagine what her screen looks like now. It's probably full. Cause there was about 14, um, domestic violence survivors in that group before and just keeping that hope that survivors get from each other alive is been um, really precious this uh, in the midst of all this. So um, pivoting a little bit, how can people in the community support those organizations that um, serve survivors? You all, ourselves, we all have a website Ours is um, RaphaelHouse.com. You could find a lot of information about us there. How about you all? Uh, one of the programs that we access and partner with a lot at the Domestic Violence Crisis Response Unit is, um, is the Sunshine Division and other food pantry and food projects that are happening across the city um, and that are really helping support folks who are facing some pretty significant food insecurity and scarcity in that, in that realm. Um, you know, we work with a lot of folks right now who are living in motels and who are staying in hotels for safety. And um, some of the traditional items at food pantries are not always um, what you could cook or make in, in a hotel room. So, you know, one of the things that we say if folks are, are looking to connect with and, and provide support for survivors, um, thinking of things like that that folks could use if they're having to stay in a hotel room for an extended period of time, food that is um, reheatable, can openers, um, different activity books and educational tools that parents can have for their children who they're staying with in those spaces. Um, th thinking of things like that, um, are, it's really helpful for folks to, to feel seen and to feel acknowledged in what they need when they're in a very different situation. 
And this is Alicia from Call to Safety. And so our website is uh, calltosafety.org. And I know that we oftentimes get calls on the crisis line from people in the community wanting to know how to donate or, or who to reach out to. So just to kind of share that, our needs, like Allison was saying, have kind of changed. Um, maybe in the past, we didn't need as many can openers, but it is a very um, helpful thing to have now. Um, so you're welcome to you know always check in if you're unclear of what those needs might be. And Home Free's website is voaor.org and you can select Home Free from a list of Volunteers of America Oregon services. And as Allison and Alicia said, we have an ongoing wish list, um, many items for this mobile advocacy, meeting people where they're at, a lot of convenience food items, um, phone minutes, those types of things are really helpful during this time. But there's definitely a whole wish list and services available if you need them as well. Thanks for mentioning all these very specific wish lists. And it gets into the nitty gritty of how we're helping people um, get by with the, the day-to-day things they need. You know, remember the run on toilet paper that, you know, was pretty significant for our, for survivors as well, who are in motels um, and in, and in their homes. Um, additionally, we've been focusing a lot on making sure that we have enough hygiene items and house cleaning supplies and some really basic things that help people budget their lives so they can ensure that they can stay housed throughout this crisis. And Emmy, I'll just mention also, um, unfortunately, in the reality of um, domestic violence and sexual violence work, one of the other things that we have found um, is having access to first aid items, that, that folks are definitely in need of being able to have access to a multitude of different different first aid items that they may need if they have experienced um, a physical assault and, and are needing to care for themselves in, a, in again, in a hotel room or while staying with a friend, um, things like that, that um, really uh, help help and help folks feel cared for um, in those moments. Thanks you all. And we're not even mentioning some of the hygiene supplies and masks and all the other things that um, really help us not only keep our offices safe and clean and our staff safe, but things that we could hand out to uh, survivors with whom we're working as well. So how can um, listeners connect with our services? Um, and in addition to that, I know we all get phone calls around this, but how can people support anyone in their lives? who may be experiencing abuse or they suspect is experiencing abuse. I think the first thing that you'll hear us say is believe someone when they're telling you what's going on for them, that you don't know all the things that are happening. And even if you know the abusive party, you don't really know what's happening behind closed doors. So I think sometimes just being a listening ear, believing um, when folks are talking to you and trusting their expertise and what they need. I think a lot of times what we hear for survivors is not only do they feel blamed sometimes when they disclose abuse with the questions like, well, why don't you just leave, which are hard enough already, but again, amplified during the time of pandemic. 
and some of the things we know that sometimes it's safer to not leave. We know that leaving is a very dangerous time for survivors. So um, a lot of what I hear from survivors that's the most supportive is just having a listening ear, someone that is believing them and not questioning them or blaming them or implying they should just leave or it'd be so easy to leave and things like that. I think um, sometimes we want to jump and be help, jump in and be helpful for folks, but often that comes off uh, definitely the wrong way um, and doesn't feel supportive. And Jenny, while I have you there, how can um, listeners connect with your services? Oh, well, thank you. Sorry, I forgot to mention that. Folks can go to our website and see specific services and contact information. Um, And additionally, we do have that restraining order um, hotline that we were speaking about earlier. We are often returning messages. So if it's safe, leave a message and let us know. But if you are interested or need to talk about protective orders, that phone number is 503-802-0506. Thanks, Jenny. Yeah, and this is Alicia with Call to Safety. Um, Thank you, Jenny, for mentioning that. I think family and friends, you know, want to support their loved ones. And it's hard to hear that somebody's experiencing harm. And oftentimes we don't know how to support them. I know that our crisis line, we receive calls from family and friends, um, you know, to ask, like, how can I support this, you know, loved one of mine who's shared this with me. Um, So, Folks are welcome to call our crisis line anytime. Again, it's 24-7 confidential. Our number, our toll-free number is 1-888-235-5333. Folks can also go to our website where we have a text and chat option Monday through Friday for certain hours. Our website is call to safety.org. It's C-A-L-L-T-O. S-A-F-E-T-Y dot org. Thanks, Alicia. So that hotline number is 1-888-235-5333. That's the 24-7 confidential hotline number. Um, We have about 10 more minutes. And um, I just want to make sure that we, Allison, do you have anything to add in terms of how can like listeners um, connect your services or if that it, that's a, a different sort of referral point from my understanding? Yeah, our, our services, um, our domestic violence enhanced response team, uh, we do have a referral form that can be access through community partners. So a lot of the time what happens is folks who are working with Alicia or Jenny's programming or with DHS child welfare or other agencies like that, um, they will send a referral form over to our advocates to connect with folks. Uh, So that is available. And then I would also just just say that part of our, a big part of our programming are domestic violence response advocates who are available seven days a week until midnight. And if you are experiencing an incident of domestic violence, specifically if law enforcement have been called and you would like to talk with an advocate, you would prefer to talk with an advocate there on scene to access safety or services, um, you can ask for an advocate to be paged and we will be called and somebody from our team will come out on scene and meet with folks and talk about what options are available and what services there are. Thanks, Allison. I, um, 
I often think the work of the response advocates is unseen so much because they're meeting with people with um, in those late night situations, in those immediate situations. And it's wonderful to know that um, somebody can actually access, ask for them in, in the moment. Um, in terms of Raphael House, we do have a 24-hour hotline. We uh, work so closely with Call to Safety. So um, our hotline is housed in our shelter, answered by shelter um, advocates. So um, they're working with shelter uh, participants while also answering the hotline. So we love it when uh, we can work closely with Call to Safety. But our number is 503-222-6222. That's 503-222-6222. Um, and, uh, and just to kind of circle back to the idea that, you know, listening taking care of survivors um, who are in your lives, um, really listening to them and believing them and um, knowing then that we need to be patient um, as they make the decisions, whether it's leaving or staying, um, whatever's most safe for them. Um, really important to this whole conversation is us thinking ahead about what, um, what we've been doing this past year, the amazing work of survivors and advocates. What is some of that, like if we could name in one word or a couple words, what resiliency looks like? This is Alicia and I think, um, you know, not just for advocates, but also for survivors, the one word that comes to my mind and actually it might be two words, but rock star. Um, you know, huge rock star. Um, resilience is um, one of the things, being able to recognize that um, is one of the things that keeps me going and the passion um, in doing this work. And I've heard that from, from advocates as well. They're doing the, the hard work that has been challenged by COVID and they are continuing and it has renewed passion um, and they, they are rock stars um, and so are survivors. And so I just wanted to, I think my word would be rock star. Super. Yeah. And I think I would, this is Allison again with uh, DBCRU. I, I would add at least uh, for sure rock stars we call a lot of our staff unicorns <laughs> because they do this really magical work um, and stay very hopeful and bright and shiny <laughs> during all of it. Um, but it is just that thinking of, you know, most, most advocates that I know and all of us on this call today have been doing this work for a, a number of years for our lifetime. Um, it has been a very deep calling and passion for folks who work in this field. Um, and, and the empathy and compassion that folks have um, really, I think, is what keeps people in this work and is what also continues to, I think, provide an access point and a way for survivors that is, is so welcoming and, and so provides so much care for folks when they're in this moment. Jenny, how about you? <laughs> and I would add that I think someone said something about feeling hopeful. One of the things that I've been impressed with our advocates, even though, as everyone said, doing a hard job um, and all of those pieces, but also these conversations that they're having about providing equitable access in the future that I think is something really great that's coming out of this. And, you know, I can't believe I'm saying that about this pandemic, but it really has sort of pushed us as 
nonprofits and governmental agencies, which I think you all know sometimes are a little little further behind in um, technology at times. And it's really helped us embrace a lot of things that I think will will stand the test of time and create really good access for survivors with disabilities, um, survivors of color that don't want to go downtown to the courthouse, um, that have had bad experiences and systems. I think it's really created some space for us to have these alternate entry points into services that I feel really excited about and I think we'll be able to hold on to for a while. Jenny, I'm so glad you mentioned that. Um, I think the fact that we have been forced to become technologically adept ourselves and then be able to provide that leadership and support for families out in the community um, has probably helped. um, It's going to help us all move forward. Um, in a different way. There's access points that have in- increased and um, not just access points to services, but access points to so many other things. So now if we've been able to provide Chromebooks to, to families um, and then teach them how to do Zoom calls on with multiple systems at the same time, then what is, what is that going to look like moving forward? That's really exciting that um, there's kids in neighborhoods that can't, that would take normally five buses. That's maybe an exaggeration, but probably not to one of our services or to downtown or to something that will provide them some resource or safety. And now, um, now they can do that in the safety of their home. Hope, you know, the safety of their home. Any other um, points of resilience? Um, I know that for me, uh, the word vicarious resilience is a beautiful counterbalance to vicarious trauma. And uh, what vicarious resilience means to me is that I watch and experience uh, advocates really recognizing the successes and the and the hope and the um, and the courage that they witness every every day with the survivors with whom they work. So um, I think that keeps us going, as you said, some of us for a pretty long time in this work. All right. Um, I'm going to close on that very hopeful note, hopefully hopeful note. I have really, really enjoyed uh, spending this time with my colleagues, um, my friends, the people that I'm used to standing around at street corners after we've been sitting at tables together, working on systems and making this incredible uh, collaborative, cooperative um, domestic violence continuum work. And I just want to remind everybody, you've been listening um, to Amplify Women on X-Ray FM. We've been celebrating International Women's Day. And thank you, Allison. Thank you, Jenny. Thank you, Alicia. Um, Thank you, X-Ray. We've loved talking to each other.